Hi, this is Malcolm Stern, and, and this is my podcast, Slay Your Dragons. And I'm very, very pleased to welcome this morning uh, Bill Murtha. Uh, Bill is a friend of mine from many years back, and he has the most extraordinary story of survival and changing his life through adversity. And, um, and, and it's one of the great stories. You wouldn't believe this story. You're going to believe it in a minute because he's going to tell you it. Um, but you wouldn't believe this story if you, you read it. There's so many sort of strange things in it. But very much a lot of the theme that we are doing with these podcasts are people who have had adversity in their lives and then made major changes. And um, Bill, you made a major change in your life. You were a semi-pro footballer, I think, at one time. Yeah, I was a sales, and salesman. Uh, and and fit and very fit, yeah. Yeah, and one day, but not so much now. No, no I can see that. You look a bit of a wreck these days, but it's, it's right. But this is an extraordinary story. And and I, I when I first heard the story... It was almost unbelievable, but I know that this is true. And I know that you have changed your life as a result of one freak incident. So would you like to tell us a bit about that? And what you what was the dragon you had to slay? What did you have to find in yourself to come through this and become who you are now? I mean, the dragon, you know, start off with a dragon. The dragon was um, probably emotions, really, uh, Malcolm, for, for a lot of us British men. Um, I wasn't particularly good at expressing my emotions. I was very much kind of, you know, it's all about outer achievement. And um, so, you know, I had a job that was very busy, you know, very much kind of 24-7, uh, repeat, you know, more. You know, it was all about accumulating more things. You know, that was part of my accolade um, and identity. And, um, I, I, you know, I wasn't in a very good place, you know, at, at the time. This is going back to 1999, by the way. And um, at a time when, you know, on the outside, my life seemed to look brilliant, you know, great cars, new cars, big, you know, holidays every year, big bonuses, lived in a big house with my ex-wife and two children, everything to the outside world looked perfect. And yet inside, beating yourself up, not feeling good enough. And um, like a lot of people, I'd use sort of substance abuse to to kind of shut down that inner um, critic and that that kind of feeling of not enough. Um, but what I used to do, which a lot of people do, um, in, in, we've all got different ways, Malcolm, haven't we? Of self-soothing. And um, my, yes. mine was kind of, uh, if it wasn't drink and um, drugs, uh, workaholic, you know, being a workaholic is a great way of shutting down those inner demons and those dragons, uh, as we know today. Um, but another good one was putting my through, you know, which I know a lot of people do as well, is putting yourself through a lot of physical pain. So my... My thing was either going out for a long run and really pushing myself to excess or going out on the bike. Um, and on this one particular day um, or evening, um, I, I I'd kind of really pushed myself for, for three quarters of an hour in the place where I lived in Dawlish in Devon at the, at the time. Um, and cycling along the cycle path for anyone that knows right next to the railway line between Dawlish and Dawlish Warren. And it was a full moon. The sun was going down. And out of nowhere on this high, 20-foot high uh, seawall right next to the railway line, a freak wave came over and uh, hit me and knocked me off my bike. And for the first few seconds, I kind of felt really embarrassed. I looked around and there was no one around. And uh, I kind of got back up. And literally, I, you know, at the moment I got back up, the second wave came crashing in and caught me kind of off, off guard and uh, off balance. And it hit me against the wall and I kind of, you know, sprawling down before I realized 
I'm sort of falling 20 feet down towards the rocks and um, uh, horrendous for those first few seconds because I knew that stretch really well. Um, and I, I was just waiting for the crack, you know, like an egg kind of being, being dropped from high. Um, and luckily, I kind of managed to land in the freezing cold water. Um, and I actually sort of, as I resurfaced again, you know, I knew round about where the bike was that had kind of just missed me. Um, and as I surfaced, even though the water was freezing, I kind of punched the air in celebration, knowing that I'd had a close escape. But <laughs> that was just the start of my worries, really. Um, within seconds, um, the reality hit and uh, another wave came slamming in, hit me against the algae covered kind of 20 foot high wall. Um, and before I knew it, you know, another one came in five seconds later and this continued for a few minutes to the point that I was almost being knocked out um, and thinking, well, I'm not going to get out of here. You know, the, the nearest walkway or the way you could get out was probably, I knew, hundreds of metres away. So I knew it was kind of, you know, how on earth am I going to get out of this? Um, and very quickly in them sort of situations, as people know, when you... Um, you know, when you're kind of brushing with death, um, you you know that you've not got much time. And uh, so I, I looked out on the horizon towards the sun, where the sun was going down and saw the lovely big full moon there. Um, and I realised that if I could swim out um, a certain distance, it would be a lot calmer and I'd got much better chance of surviving. And even after a few minutes, Malcolm, I could really feel that my body was starting to kind of adjust to the freezing cold water. You know, it was April, you know, which is, you know, March, April, one of the coldest times of the year because it's had several months of, of winter. And um, so I got to this point where I thought, right, I'm going to have to use all of my energy. And thanks for reminding me that there was a time one day where I was younger and fitter, uh, as we all were. Um, but luckily, I you know, I was probably as fit as I ever was in my life. And I managed somehow to swim against the tide with every bit of energy I had for the next kind of five and 10 minutes. Um, and I managed to get beyond the waves, you know, sort of 50 meters out. And, and it was then for the first time that I was trying to able to kind of take stock of the situation. You know, I was almost sort of semi-traumatized in that first 10, 15 minutes. Um, and then it was, it kind of suddenly dawned on me, you know, the sun was going down and um, I, I'm not going to get out of this. And it's at that first moment that you start to realize and contemplate death. Um, no one's around. No one's walking their dog after dark. Um, I knew that stretch really well. Um, it, you know, I got no chance of swimming to the nearest area to climb out. Um, and at that time, even you know, it doesn't take very long in freezing cold water before the hypothermia starts to come in. Uh, and the first signs of it are your organs, because your organs are the softest tissue. So I started to feel it in my chest and my kidneys and, you know, my head was starting to really ache and getting a headache. And, um, you know, in that next, well, obviously I'm, I'm giving you time frames now, but at the time, time seems to stop. And yes, exactly. at, 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 oh, it's just, you know, unless you've been there in these kind of situations, um, you know, <laughs> we all hope that we're going to wake up, don't we, in one day and we've, we, you know, um, or not wake up, you know, we die in our sleep or we are at a sudden death. But, you know, when you're contemplating your death, it moves you into a different mindset. And hmm. um, so um, I, I got to a period where uh, I was doing a lot of contemplating, a lot of and all weird kind of stuff starts to come in your mind, Malcolm. Um, you know, um, I'm never going to give my daughters away. You know, someone else is going to inherit all the insurance money. Um, 
they're probably never going to find my body. It's going to be washed out and, you know, and they're going to think I've taken taken off or something. I had a mental breakdown and moved to a different part of the world. Or, you know, there's a hundred things going through your mind um, because nobody, if they ever find you, we're ever going to know what happened to you. And um, that sort of scared me. Um, but the, the, the biggest thing is once you kind of start to face death and, and start looking at it closely, which is something most of us will never do right until the end's, you know, end part of our life. Um, all kinds of emotions are stirring up from the past. You know, we we all have these moments uh, where different emotions from the past are triggered, but it's almost like a super triggering event where all those emotions you've never reconciled, all those shadows you've never come to peace with, all seem to be coming up at once. Um, and 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 you know, if even you know twenty odd years later, it's hard to explain this. Well, it's interesting because the Greeks call it um, Kairos time. The, the Kronos time is the time of the watch. So we take an hour, we know it's an hour. But you went into a timeless zone um, because actually you were no longer living according to the laws of you as a human being getting on with your life. Something was changing dramatically. And at that moment, you presumed you were going to die. You had no Absolutely. Uh, there's a knowing. There's a knowing. There's almost like, I, I wouldn't say I've accepted it, but you know it. And that's a yeah. very kind of different thing. And and the fear, you can't even, even quarter of a century later, I can't explain the, the fear that you get that starts to overwhelm your your whole sense of body. Um, and, and all kinds of things are going through your mind. And uh, fast forward to, you know, I'm literally going through a million different thoughts and feelings in, in this, this time. Um, and then there reached a time where I started to go, I know this, I started to go in and out of consciousness and I, I knew I was getting a bit scared. Um, and, um, you know, I, I lost a few seconds here and there, a bit like when we're kind of in the evening or, you know, we're, we're sat there and we, we fall asleep and have a nap for 10 minutes. We wake up, we know things have shifted. Um, it, it kind of felt a bit like that. And um, um the, the next thing I kind of was conscious of, I wasn't there. I was almost in some kind of dream state. And um, I don't want to talk about having a kind of life review because it wasn't a life review. But the best way I always uh, explain this is that imagine the most profound, emotionally moving moments in your life, good and bad, you know, negative and positive. I seem to be... Um, reliving those particular experiences and, and i'll give you just one example of many you know um i got knocked down as an 11 year old kid in london living in london i run across the road without warning um and got hit by a car now that was a traumatic event i just about survived but i i um relived that um experience in the water only on a more profound, higher level of consciousness level. So it's almost like I was living it with extra feelings than I would have been at the time as an 11-year-old. So the body carries the memories of these things and they can get triggered. I often see this when I'm running a therapy group. Someone will get ricocheted by something and then that feeling will get triggered as though it had happened yesterday. I mean, it's so true. It's so true. That that memory is alive and we just need to bring it to to, to, to life again, don't we? Um, the body does keep the score, as we know, um, many years later. Um, so this one particular experience, I seem to go through the whole experience again as a boy, cut to the next scene. And I now, for whatever reason, life is showing me the experience from the woman who was driving the car that actually hit me. 
And it was almost like I was inside her consciousness, seeing from her eyes. But, you know, I could even see the hands on the wheel and I'm driving towards a version of myself. Um, and I hit myself, you know, I hit I hit the little boy, the 11 year old boy and crashed the car into the into the wall. And I can feel the woman's heartbeat and I can feel her emotions. She's crying hysterically in this kind of out of state kind of consciousness. And, and I'm actually living her experience. So actually, you'd you'd enter in, you'd entered into the superconscious realm at this in that at that moment in preparation for dying. If, in fact, you were reviewing your life. People say your life flashes before you. You were preparing to die, even though you didn't want to die. You was you, you saw no way through that, did you? No, I mean you don't know all this. We're talking very very contextually and kind of reflectively sure. now. At the time, I, you're not even sure. It's almost like a semi dream. Yeah. And, and in fact, that's one of the, the, the geniuses of, of shock system in the body is that it actually takes you out of that horrendous fear and actually takes you into a different, an altered state of consciousness. Certainly when you're preparing to die, and I've heard this from lots of people who've had near-death experiences, when you're preparing to die, something changes and it's almost as though you're lifted above your everyday consciousness. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's the way it was in, in that I'm having an out-of-body experience with a dream-like state. I'm living the experience of this woman and I'm crying hysterically. I'm feeling all the emotions in her body. And yeah. she stumbles out of the car. She rips all her tights. She she sort of almost stumbles across to the boy that looks like me uh, on, on the floor, dead. And she is wailing and everyone else is kind of coming around. And, and, and literally what was weird, I felt her emotions as if they were my own emotions. And the funny thing is, Malcolm, I'd never until that point in, you know, my accident was what, 1976, you know, I was an 11 year old boy. I had the near death in uh, 99. I'd never given much thought to that poor woman and what I'd put her through, whether I'd changed her life and what she'd gone through. I'd never until that time in the water experienced and felt what she empathically, compassionately must have gone through. And, and you know, there were lots of other experiences like that, um, which I won't go into. And anyway, that kind of bit finished. And then as if that wasn't enough, you know, um, I've, I've gone, then I've gone through the anger stage, you know, um, uh, of I, I'm only 34 years old. I don't deserve to die. I'm not a bad person. Um, you know, why is life doing this to me? So I go through all the anger of dying early or perceived to be dying early. Um, and I'm still in this kind of semi, uh, you know, semi-conscious state. Um, and, and the funny thing is, Malcolm, once you go past all the regrets and the anger bit, I then seem to somehow on the other side of it come to some kind of acceptance, some kind of inner peace. And and the weird thing is if like the replays, the life review bit wasn't strange enough, I then started this amazing conversation in my head, which seemed, I mean, it couldn't have gone on for more than two hours because that's roughly how long I was ended up being in the water, apparently. Um, but this conversation seemed to go on for, for weeks, literally. And, the only thing I can sort of say about it is that this conversation, and it is two way, we all have an inner speak, we all have a, an inner voice, um, call it wisdom, um, an insight on the good side, you know, the, <laughs> the good hero. Um, and then we've got the anti hero, which is the damning kind of, you know, constricted. Well, in, in religion, they talk about the still small voice within. So actually, you accessed that still small voice, or yeah. whatever your, your version of it was. So what, yeah. happened, what happened with the. Um, 
this voice? What was it saying to you? Well, well, it started off with um, um, the actual first few sentences I can remember, just like they were yesterday, which was along the lines of "I'm not, you know, I'm not a bad person." Um, um, what, what what is happening to me? You know, why am I going through this? Um, you know, my 34 years aren't enough on earth. I, I felt like I was going to do, like a lot of us, Malcolm, we wait for certain things before we start living our lives, don't we? You know, yeah. I'm going to start, you know, next year, the, the you know, 10 years time when I retire, that sort of thing. But I, I started to feel a, a real sad, once the anger had gone, I felt a real regret of all the life I had not lived. Really, and I think for most of us, we 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 know uh, intellectually that we're going to die, but we are not triggered with that. You got triggered with that, which set in chain a whole. And I know there's a very amazing end to this story as well, which is uh, which is extraordinary. But so don't, let me hear a little bit about this voice. Was it a wise person that was speaking to you? So so we we kind of know the signature tune, the the tone of our own inner voice, don't we? Yeah. But this voice was um, still still a male, but a lot calmer. Uh, the only way I could probably describe it, imagine that I live another 100 lives and become hopefully, hopefully, he says, um, a lot wiser. Um, it's, it's kind of a part of you, but it's not of you, this voice, because it was a lot calmer, more serene, more wise, more insightful than I knew I was or my consciousness this, was. This Whatever spoke to you, was not caught up in the everyday hubbub of the world. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It, it was gentle, loving, caring, compassionate, but also wise and insightful. And anyway, I started to have a two-way dialogue with this voice and started to ask my biggest question. You know, I've always been a curious child. Um, I, I did have a bit of a shift after that 11-year-old boy incident, um, you know, being knocked down, where I felt the next day something had shifted in me. And I, I know it was some kind of intuition I picked up because I started to, to sense different things in my mother and other people. And so something – so that kicked that, that kicked a chain uh, reaction off at 11 years old to start being very curious about the world. And there's a lot more than we're, we're told. Um, but, you know – what I got to a point with this conversation where I was asking all questions about the future of the world. Um, you know, again, it's a dream state, a semi-conscious um, about, you know, uh, the purpose of emotions and where we're going and compassion, how we're linked on an energy level. It was just kind of incredible, really. And all this time, Bill, you're two hours in freezing water and and <clears throat> presumably, you know, someone less fit than you would be dead by then. Absolutely. I mean, you're not meant to really survive more than about an hour in freezing cold water. Um, you know, I'm not conscious of it as well, 100%. So I'm, I'm kind of semi-conscious. I'm not at this stage, Malcolm, I'm not even sure if I'm still alive. Because oh, you're in you're in that such a, a dream state, you know, um, you're not even really sure of what's kind of and even today, all these years later, I still can't, um, you know, properly kind of understand it. So, you know, the conversation, you know, became the book, Dying for a Change, because I had to get this stuff out of me. And what is funny... Say, Bill, you wrote a book called Dying for Change based on this experience. Based on the experience, based on what I, I learned and picked up in the, um, you know, in the water. Bearing in mind, Malcolm, because of being a dyslexic, uh, dyspraxic child, which wasn't even kind of identified back in the, in the 70s, um, I'd not read a book for about 20 years. Since, since leaving school. 
So, you know, that's quite incredible. Not a single book. Um, and and so, you know, this stuff was all new to me and it was all insightful and, you know, kind of I'm trying to absorb it all because it was just so big. But in a weird way, my consciousness could hold it and, and kind of understand it. I think that's the thing. It felt, it felt like you came to peace with whatever was happening for you, even though you were in a sort of a semi um, oblivious state. You were still there. Was a peacefulness. Everyone well hearing the story. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Oh. That I'd never and, experienced. And was this voice calling you by name? Did it sort of like was it like a loving father or mother or what was the um, voice like? I mean, almost non-binary. Um, almost a. It was definitely a male voice, but the energy was a very strong mixture of feminine and kind of masculine. Yeah. Uh, and, and that you know, very loving, but at the same time very authoritative. But just, I still can't really you know properly kind of understand it. But the the information that I got was incredible, which I later you know got together with a book. So you know, conversation went on for what seemed like weeks, and then you know, um, a couple of things happened um, again in the water. I seem to come back to more uh, of being conscious suddenly of um, what's happening around me. And I remember by now that, you know, I'm kind of looking down and the sun had almost completely disappeared and the stars were starting to come out. And there was one particular scene that I, I'll never forget. In that, that, you know, along that coastline, there's some really strong red rock, you know, um, uh, limestone rock. Um, and, um, I remember looking at the top of this rock uh, uh, on the edge of a cliff and there was a seagull there and I just was mystified. You know, when we get captured by a particular piece of beauty and light or, 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 or you know, anything <clears throat> art and, and it just absolutely captured me, this, this seagull with the light, um, you know, the, bearing, the, the, the rest of the light just kind of captured on, on, on the seagull and then the red, the real bright red of the, of the rocks. And I just remember watching this seagull sort of glide down. It was almost like Jonathan Seagull and, and, and glide down. And the next minute, I'm actually the seagull. So my consciousness has somehow shifted from me in the water, struggling to survive, to this serene gliding seagull that's kind of skimming the edge of the, of the water. And it was just sort of some kind of weird dreamlike state. Um, well, amazing. Well, the, the mystics all say, Bill, or a lot of the mystics say, that actually we enter into a state when we become awakened. And in that moment, you were awakened. And you were awakened by your seemingly impending death arriving very shortly. Mm-hmm. And what I'm hearing is that in that awakenedness, in that awakened state, um, you were one with everything. And I remember yeah. a friend of mine who fasted for three years um, because she said, I, I want to know God. And if I can't know God, I'm going to start starve myself to death. And then something happened and she ate an apple and she was the apple and she was everything. And it's like for three weeks, she lived in that extraordinary state. And then finally, she came back to, to real, or she came back to the, our everyday consciousness. But what I'm hearing is you had such a potent experience that you were no longer Bill. You were, you'd started to become the cosmos. All, all of life, and and, and you, unless someone's experienced that, Malcolm, hopefully your friend, you know, and you've had other experiences as well. Uh, I know, yeah. But unless you've been there and experienced, it's it's almost beyond words, isn't it? Well, it sounds crazy, but actually, what I'm hearing is that you were absolutely sane. You know, I'm, I mean, as sane as you could possibly be, Bill. Anyway, but 
but actually you know there's no there's no trace there of sort of a delusion or of of sort of psychosis well yeah. is a, a a dancing with death as death started to approach you yeah yeah so 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 you know cue the end of the conversation the seagull event um and then the next thing you know like click and another scene and i'm in a hallway which is bizarre and uh, I'm looking around, you know, where did the seagull go? Where did the water go? I'm in my hallway of where we lived at the time in a big kind of Victorian house in um, in Dawlish. And I'm looking around and I see some people brush past me. And it's my ex-wife with my two children. And I hear the doorbell go. And my ex-wife goes to the, the, the front door and she's got each of my daughters, one each side. Um and she opens the door and there's a policeman and a policewoman stood there. Um, and they said, this is Murtha. And yeah, and they, they kind of stutter a bit. And then they say, um, I'm afraid we've um, we've found your husband's body in Timmouth, just up the up the coast. Um, and and um, I'm sorry to inform you, you know, that he's dead and, you know, all the rest of it. And I could hear. And there was that moment that I'm going through this vision which I'm then now presuming is a future um, of this is what I'm, I've, I'm now spirit or, or wherever we go afterwards. Yeah. Um, and I'm now viewing the, 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 the time a few days later where they find my body in the, uh, on the shore or in the water. I mean, that is, that is scary. But it um, looked like there was no other option than that. That was the direct, the only direction that had any possibility. It's dark. The stars are out. There's no, no one walking their dogs at that time of night. And you are there in the water waiting to die. And then and, and, something magical happened in the mill. Oh, just magical. You know, so I'm in the hallway and and suddenly I, had a, I, I know absolutely that I've got a choice. I can make a choice. And I decide that I, I'm not ready for death yet. I've got too much unfulfilled work. You know, I've made my life about work or, you know, the wrong kind of work, not my creative kind of other side of work which was always going to be tomorrow. And so I decided that I'm not ready for death. And the minute, literally, with every fibre of my being, Malcolm, I made the decision to stay, the whole hallway and everything, the police, my daughters, you know, all disappeared. I'm back in the water. Whoosh, it was like having an electric shock. The cold kind of come back in again. And I'm back in the water. And and, and like that you know, first few kind of minutes, I'm like, what's just happened? I can't even contextualize it. I <laughs> can't even yeah. explain it. Um, and um, so I look to the shoreline and there's a, uh, a, a three, four story building and there's a light at the top of this building. So this is like 50 odd meters away on the other side of the railway line. I look up at this building and do something I've never done up to my, uh, up to then at 34 years old. I started praying and I didn't, know what or who I was praying to. I was just praying for saviour, for another chance, for redemption. And, you know, I could see a silhouette at the top of this sort of flat. Um, and um, and I was praying to whoever that was there that they could see me. And then I kind of looked away again. Uh, and very quickly, I then heard a voice shouting at me. And I, I was so scared, Malcolm, to turn around in the water to look towards the shore you know, to see if there's a shadow there, because by now it's starting to get dark. I was too scared that it was in my mind, you know, that it created this hopeful vision and, and noise. Um, so it took me a few minutes. But then when I did turn around, there was a guy waving to me from the, from the, the you know, the side next to the railway line. And 
the first thing he said, which has kind of really got me angry, the first one thing he said was, do you want help? And so <laughs> I, I, I was... I was so kind of incensed, you know, of everything I've gone through and how I was feeling. And um, so um, long story short, they managed to fire somehow one of these orange boys with a rope on out to me. Um, and because of the hypothermia, I couldn't grab the rope or the boy. It was like, you know, a, um, a hot knife going through butter. So I kind of uh, managed to somehow grabbed the boy and this is where the funny thing comes in there was another that voice that i'm talking about said literally you know word for word look for the noose at the end of the boy so i kind of grabbed the boy you know frantically struggling around in the freezing cold water i'm i'm grabbing the boy and at the end there was a <laughs> meter long noose which i managed to slip my arm through and then what they managed to do by now a few more people are kind of on the you know on the water side and they started to um, all haul me in almost like a fish about several hundred meters along to where there was a break. And of course, by now there was, um, uh, there was flashing lights and an ambulance waiting and they kind of whisked me off quickly to Torbay hospital. And even then, it, you know, it was half an hour from Dawlish to, to, to um, a weaving road to Torquay on the back road on the coastal road. And even then I knew it was touch and go because I was in and out of consciousness and I got to the sort of, you know, the, the, the hospital. I knew it was serious because they wanted to get a lot of, you know, chemicals and everything and, into me to kind of bring my body temperature up again. So they managed to do that. And, you know, I had a, uh, they kind of knocked me out and uh, I was gone most of the night. And um, anyway, I woke up next morning. Sun was up. I was in Torbay Hospital. And it was that kind of weird feeling of, Oh my God, I've lived an amazing ordeal. Who on earth is even going to believe the half of it? And um, I, I got to a point where um, I was trying to make sense of it. And I thought, this is just like for another day, you know, it's too much for me to, to, to take on board. And my, my wife came in in the morning um, and, um, you know, I was talking to her about it, but I could only share the very basics. Of it. Didn't mention about the conversation or anything about that. It was too big and I didn't want people to think I'm kind of mad. Um, and anyway, uh, in the afternoon, the, um, the matron come over and she seemed a bit flustered and irritated. And she said, um, Mr. Murtha, there's a, a journalist downstairs for you. He wants to um, talk to you. And um, I thought it was because we were, you know, doing quite well with that football and we were in the papers every week. Um, I thought it was to do with the football. And um, she said, no, this journalist wants to talk to you about a guy that had spotted you. And that, of course, this is the first news to me. And so I go down and talk to this um, journalist. Um, and there are apparently a lot of national papers, the local papers are having this big story. I knew nothing about all this. So I was talking to the journalist. And he sort of, in, in outline, he, he told me that, um, yeah, the guy had spotted you. Um, and what transpires is that, um, and you've heard that story, this story many times, um, um, the, the guy had been asking his friend in the apartment below for nine months that he wants to borrow a telescope to look at the stars, look at the moon. And on the very afternoon um, that I'd gone in the water that evening, he had finally brought the the telescope up for this guy Nathan to borrow and um so Nathan had kind of set the telescope up it was a full moon he'd gone away to make a drink on the other side of the apartment come back and the telescope had dropped and he thought that's a bit strange 
And he actually looked through it and there was like seagulls, kind of, you know, what he thought was seagulls flashing around. Um, and it turns out he took a closer look and, um, oh my God, there, there was me flashing around in the water. So he kind of, he apparently was the guy that called the emergency services and he was the guy that was waving to me from the, from the side. And, you know, the next um, day, because I wanted to meet Nathan, because this was just, all, the whole thing was too big for me. So Nathan come around our home and we kind of had a chat and then we had pictures for the for the media and that, and it was all in the papers. Um, but, you know, I, I was still struggling to understand the enormity of this coincidence, you know, serendipity, you know, meaningful coincidences. Um, and it, it actually took me a year and a half before I could even talk to anyone about the conversation and everything. Didn't even start writing about it because a lot of people won't realise this when they're deaf. You believe that you're going to change your life the next day. It doesn't happen like that. Sometimes no, that's right. <clears throat> we all know this, um, that the enormity of it can be so big that you'd rather put it all in a box and just get on with your life and keep being destructive and getting worse. I think the thing is, at those moments, we have the opportunity. We've, we've flipped our lives 180 degrees, or our lives have flipped 180 degrees, and you've got the opportunity to go, what am I going to do with this one wild and precious life? How am I going to live it? And I know that you made enormous changes. Um, you went from being a sort of like, you know, a sort of um, guy who was hungry for money and and sort of experiences in life and all of this sort of stuff to someone who's actually using your skills now to assist people who, who struggle and you've become a, a very successful life coach and uh and also you've written a number of books so there's something that's that is, is something got hatched in you from that experience and it don't you're right it doesn't happen overnight it's a bit like we end a relationship we think we've ended a relationship but it takes ages for it to actually unpick itself and what i can see is that you have unpicked yourself over the years and you've become something else, someone else. But actually, who you are now, you wouldn't choose to go back to who you were then, would you? No, no. And, and you know, there is, I believe, now we've all got a, a different concept of this. I believe that we all, when we go through a near death, that is a post-traumatic stress event. And what we forget is that because, of, you know, it's hard to land the emotions around that experience, that extraordinary traumatic event, Um we literally, if we do the work, we go through a um, dark night of the soul, don't we? And, and, you know, what we have to do is realise that one follows the other. So you're going through the dark night of the soul when you're doing the work. And if you do the work, you're hopefully going towards post-traumatic growth. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and I believe, you know, I've kind of thought about this a lot. I've talked to other near-death experiences um, well, Evelyn Valerino, uh, Kenneth Ringer wrote a book called Lessons from the Light. You know, I, I kind of connected with, with uh, Evelyn a few years after my accident. Um, they've studied 30,000 near-death experiences, so they know what they're doing. And actually, there's a similar format, similar growth spurt, similar post-traumatic growth if, if you do the work. And I truly believe now that, you know, on a mini near-death scale, the whole planet has now just gone through the last three and a half years a mini near-death experience and i think we're collectively consciously um going through our own dark night of the soul um whatever <laughs> that looks like to everyone before we can get to the post-traumatic growth 
It's funny, I remember talking to Sir George Trevelyan, who was known as the sort of grandfather of the New Age up in, in, the, uh, in the 60s. And uh, he, said, um, he said that <clears throat> it has to get right to the edge before we change. A little bit like the Alcoholics Anonymous map. You've got to go down to the bottom before you start to find your way out. And I think what you're looking at is your individual scenario, and then you're looking at the global scenario. Actually, we are getting close to the point where we can't continue the way we were. So you and in a microcosm couldn't continue the way you were. You could have done, but you, but life wasn't going to let you do that. No, and what no. you're seeing is this is actually acting out in the world as well now. Yeah, yeah, and and I think for me, where I was at that moment in '99, I was doing a lot of acting out. I wasn't expressing my creativity and true authentic self. I wasn't being vulnerable. Um, it was all about ego. It was all about outer. It was all about materialism. I mean, we could be writing the script for the last few years, couldn't we, before we hit the, the pandemic. You know, the pandemic has, has upended people's beliefs and conceptions and ideas about who they are and what they want to do with their life. Yeah. Yeah. But you are now living a life that you are proud of. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it's an authentic life. You know, don't get and me that's wrong. The thing. It's an authentic life. And so this is what looks like adversity. This is very much the theme of what we're doing with the podcast. We we go through what looks like adversity. We go through adversity. I went through the death of my daughter to suicide. You go through adversity going, why am I being punished by this nasty God who's sort of like raining down sort of hell on me? But actually we are being refined and educated by our experiences and our suffering. And interesting, the word compassion um, means with suffering. If we're to have compassion, we have to go to the place of suffering with others. And because you've suffered, um, and you, know, you went through a hell of a, a doozy of a story, um, you are actually more available for other people's suffering now. I mean, as we get older, we kind of understand that actually pain and suffering is the root out of this, don't we? We understand if we, we're looking for what that pain and suffering is giving us in the moment. If we could take a more holistic level, a more futuristic level, we would understand that actually, usually, a bit like I always say, emotions are messengers, Malcolm. You know, they're, they've, they're, they've got big les lessons for us. You know, that's why emotions are showing up. I, I think, you know, uh, the, these big events of pain and suffering are helping us, you know, almost with an invisible cloak because they're not looking like growth and personal development up close, are they, to begin with? We're just thinking that it's suffering trauma. Well, when you get your life upended in the way that you've described, in the way that I've described, you can't go back. You can go back, but it's like, it's almost like something won't let you, won't leave you in peace. And I remember James Hillman, the psychotherapist, wrote um, mm. about inside every one of us is a diamond, D-A-E-M-O-N, not a demon, but it's like a, a spirit that's inside us. And it will drive us nuts until we do what it is we were born to do. And so I'm hearing that you've got one hell of a powerful lesson and that you have actually turned your life 180 degrees into something you're now proud of. And you're, you're now not looking to look after number one. You're looking to be a part of the healing of the world. Yeah. That sounds a bit, a bit over the top, but it's like, I think that's, we all play our small parts in that as well. Uh, and what's really strange the last few years, especially since March 2020, you know, the pandemic, you know, we've done our coaching now for a long time, me and Jane. Um, and but I've noticed this last few years that more and more people are feeling that uh, they're almost wearing the wrong coat in their life, the wrong wrong size shoes, and that they need to be doing something that brings out their creativity, ingenuity, imagination, um, 
you know, anything that, that, you know, the job that they're doing is no longer fulfilling them, giving them passion, purpose and meaning. And this, this is always the case. And it's always been the case for therapy. And it's always been the case with coaching. But something seems to have happened that's put it into fast gear the last few years. Well, I think we are going through a major shift in, in, in consciousness on our planet. We need to go through a major shift in consciousness. And will we survive as a species? Well, I think we are being woken up. And I'm not talking about the woke culture. I'm just talking about that actually coming to terms with the, the who we really are, not the persona that we've established in the world. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's yeah. an amazing story. So if you were able to sort of like to, to sort of quantify what was the dragon you had to slay in order to, to move forward from this experience? Right. It's, it's never kind of simple, but if I had to put a headline showreel on it, the, the dragon is trying to live up the dragon I had to slay was the belief that um, you had to live a certain way, which society and culture say, you know, in the matrix, we should be living. That materialistic outer accolade, you know, what you've got is kind of a sense of your identity. You know, the dragon for me was not getting in touch with your real inner self, your feelings, um, getting connected to your emotions in the body, uh, showing your vulnerability, being fabulously flawed, you know, all those good things that we've kind of, those of us that have been waking, we're all waking up, we just don't realise it. But I think what is a realisation that is waking up in all of us is that the old story, um, that patriarch, top-down, materialistic, chase the money, We've all bought into a story that actually is not true and it doesn't sustain and fulfill us, does it? Very good. Well, that's lovely, Bill. Thank you so much for coming along today and uh, and doing this with me. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, uh, you know, we, we talked about your story quite some time ago and I was blown away by it. And I'm blown away again today, you know, hearing the extra... Jung said, everything is synchronicity. Mm. That guy gave the telescope that day, it pointing downwards instead of pointing upwards. There was a whole bunch of stuff that, that came together in order to give you a very profound experience, but then to actually save you and to pull you through into a different place. Lovely. Thank you for having me, Malcolm. It's been um, been a pleasure. Great. Well, I'll look forward to, uh, to further conversations with you. Thank Great. you, Bill. Okay. Thank you, Malcolm. Take care.